Hello there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! This past Thursday, I was reading about a man from North Carolina by the name of Conrad Reed. In the year 1799, Conrad Reed was fishing in this beautiful little creek in North Carolina known as Little Meadow Creek. While he was fishing there, he discovered a rock that weighed 17 pounds. He knew it was an unusual rock, so he decided to take it home. And once he brought it home, the only use that he and his family could find for the rock was that of a doorstop. And so for three years, this rock served as a doorstop for their home. Well, in the year 1802, his father, John Reed, saw the rock, took it to a jeweler, and it was identified as a, gump, uh, as a lump of gold worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Remember, this thing weighed 17 pounds. And so that lump of gold which was used as a doorstop for three years in North Carolina, is still today one of the biggest golden nuggets ever found east of the Rocky Mountains. Until its composition was determined, its value was unknown. And even so, until the composition of our faith is determined, in other words, until we find out how deep our faith is, how pure our faith is, the strength of our faith can sometimes be unknown. God allows trials in our lives. And he does this not to hurt us, but to strengthen us and to prove us to be authentic in our faith. We have been preaching through the book of James for several months now in a series entitled Alive and Well. James writes this book to his readers for a single purpose. He wants their faith in Jesus Christ to be and to remain alive and well. And so for the past two weeks, we've been looking at the subject of patience. Because in James chapter 5, he has a lot to say about being patient. We looked at the, the, the patience a farmer must display. Last week we looked at the patience the Old Testament prophets had to display. Well today James is going to give us his final example as it relates to being patient. Particularly how we must remain patient during those times in our lives when we have trials and suffering. Now I want to remind you that James is the half-brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They share the same mother Mary, obviously, Jesus' father was God, and James' father was Joseph. And James, if you remember, is writing this book, writing this letter, actually, during some times of immense persecution for the church in Jerusalem. James is a key leader in this mother church in the New Testament in the city of Jerusalem. If you remember, when Jesus had his ministry on earth, James is recorded on record in the Bible of saying he is out of his mind. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about. 
But after Jesus rose from the dead, James was one of the over 500 people that Jesus appeared to. And not only did James put his faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, but he became a prominent leader in this church in the city of Jerusalem. So before we land in the book of James, I want to take you to the book of Acts for just a couple of minutes. Acts chapter 2 reminds us that that's when the church started, on the day of Pentecost. We're going to be in Acts chapter 7 in just a second. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 7, in the city of Jerusalem where the church started, there were thousands of Christians. By Acts chapter 7, there's probably over 20,000 Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Well, persecution came upon the church like a tornado, without warning. It just swooped in on the church. And we're introduced to a man named Stephen. We're told that Stephen is a leader in the church. And so he was on the same leadership team with James, the brother of Jesus. He was a deacon, and, and he was in charge of making sure that the food pantry was open for widows and, and for orphans. But probably the, the, the thing that he is most well known for is Stephen becomes the first person in the New Testament that we read about dying because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We see this in Acts chapter 7 verses 59 and 60. It says, And they were stoning Stephen, and he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Oftentimes when we read the Bible, to us they're just words on paper, and we really miss the weight and the depth of what the Bible is saying to us. That phrase, as they were stoning Stephen, has so much weight and so much depth. When you begin to study how stoning occurred uh, in the New Testament around this period of time, it was absolutely brutal. They would have taken Stephen up to a platform that would be about 20 feet high on the outside wall of the city of Jerusalem. They would have thrown him off in, in hopes that his legs would break. Then they would form a semicircle around Stephen and people would take stones of 15 to 20 pounds and they would thrust down upon him, breaking his ribs and damaging his organs as he probably had his head covered. We often picture stoning someone of, of them standing far away, but, but stoning was done up close and personal because the people doing the stoning were irate. They were angry. They literally like to watch the life leave a person's eyes as each rock pelted them. I mean, this is obviously a brutal way to die. And, and what I want you to understand is this is a member from their church in Jerusalem. This is a member of the church that James is writing this letter to. And so Stephen is stoned to death, and following this event, persecution absolutely erupted for this church in Jerusalem. The very next verse, Acts 8, chapter 1, it says this, And Saul approved his execution. In other words, Saul approved the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so what's happening is persecution after this became so intense, people are fleeing the city of Jerusalem to get away from this persecution because they were being arrested, they were being thrown in jail, they were being murdered. And so they went on the run. Well, you have this guy named Saul who is going to turn himself into a bounty hunter. I'm sure some of you have seen uh, the show Dog the Bounty Hunter. Well, this is Saul the Bounty Hunter. And his plan is he is going to leave Jerusalem. He is going to go hunt down these Christians that fled. He's going to bring them back to the city. He's going to imprison them and ultimately execute them. We read about it in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, that's what Christians called themselves in the book of Acts, people of the way. So anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound in chains back to Jerusalem. Okay, so the church was under fire big time in the city of Jerusalem. And so this prompts James to write the book of James. It's a letter that's to be distributed to the churches. They couldn't meet together because of persecution. So they had to figure a way out. They didn't have online services. They didn't have Facebook Live. And so James wrote this letter. One family would read it, it would be passed on to another family. Or several families would get together and they would read this letter we know as the book of James. And so what I want you to understand is that James is addressing an audience that know a lot about suffering and being patient. And so with that kind of setting the scene, let's look at the last example James gives us the reader and his church where he's a leader at on patience. James 5.11 says this, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So let me just stop right here for a second. James says, in other words, those who kept the faith, those who didn't cave under this immense persecution, those who didn't denounce Jesus as, as their Lord, those are the people that are blessed because they remain steadfast and patient. And then he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so James is listing this man in the Old Testament, this man Job, as, an, as his final example on the subject of patience. You may have heard or you may have even used the phrase, the patience of Job. Something like, man, that guy over there, he is the most patient man on earth. He has the patience of Job. In other words, when someone exhibits great endurance through all kinds of trials or provocations, we say that person has the patience of Job. And so James is saying, hey, when hardships come, when there is suffering, when you feel like cursing God and blaming God when you just want to crawl a hole in a hole and die be like Job remain patient 
And so I want to give you a very brief description of the life of Job. Um, There's a book in the Old Testament named Job. You can read it for yourself. But Job's life was a good life. We're told that he was very well off. He had miles and miles of land. He had livestock by the thousands. He had a wife and he had ten healthy, beautiful children. Well, in the first part of the book of Job, we're told that Satan had been roaming the earth to find a good man, to find a person that has a pure heart, to find someone that is worthy of of God taking the time to do all that he's doing to redeem mankind. And it tells us that he went to God and says, I can't find anyone on the earth worthy of this. And God looks at Satan and says, well, what about my servant Job? There is none like him. He is righteous. He is steadfast. He loves me wholeheartedly. He is diligent. He is persistent. And the devil says to God, well, of course he is. I mean, that's because he's healthy. That's because he owns all this land. That's because he's rich. His children are healthy. Everyone loves him. You've blessed him so much. Of course he loves you. And Satan looks at God and says, just let me mess with him for a little bit. Let me make him suffer. Then you'll see how faithful he is. Then you'll really know how much he loves you. Just let me mess with him. And so God says, okay, you can. You can mess with him, but you can't touch him. Don't touch a hair on his head. So in Job chapter 1, I want you to understand this, church. In a very literal sense... All hell breaks loose on the life of Job. We're told in verse 14 of chapter 1 that a messenger comes to him and says, Job, all of your ox and all of your donkeys have been stolen. And the the people who stole them, they also murdered all of your servants, all those attending them. They're all dead. I escaped with my life. I'm the only one left, but it's all gone. Well, no sooner than that comes out of his mouth, another man comes running into Job. And he's all charred up and covered with soot. And he says, hey, I was out in the sheep pasture with all the shepherds who were tending your flocks. And lightning just came out of nowhere and struck the ground. And I I can't explain it, but we all got pinned in. Every last one of your sheep was burned alive, as well as the shepherds. I'm the only one that escaped. But right after that, yet another messenger comes in and he says, Job, I was down on the back 40 of the property, you know, way down there where we keep all of those thousands of camels. And we were attacked and all the camels were stolen and all of your workers were killed. I'm the only one that escaped with my life. Job didn't even have time to process that he had lost everything. And then another messenger comes in and he says, I've got bad news. Your ten children were at the house of your oldest child and they were, they were having a birthday party. They were having a feast. They were celebrating. And out of nowhere, a tornado came. It struck the house. It collapsed. And every single one of your children are dead. And so Job lost everything in a single day. All of his wealth, all of his employees, all of his children. And I want you to notice his response when this happens because I believe this is why James tells us to use Job as an example of patience during suffering. Job 1, 20 
through 22. Then Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground, and don't miss what he did next, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Are you kidding me? After what just happened, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then look at verse 22. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I love what John Piper says about the story of Job. He says this, Job's story is recorded so that we can have help living through calamities while at the same time trusting that God is sovereign. So back to the story, Satan goes back to God and God says, See, I told you, you took away all of his wealth. You took away all of his children, but I knew his heart was pure. He still praised me. And the devil said, yeah, that's because you don't let me put my hands on him. You don't let me touch his skin. You don't let me make him suffer physically. If I could make him suffer physically, he would curse you. And God says, okay, you can. One stipulation, you can't kill him. You have to keep him alive. And so just as Job is recovering from losing his wealth, from losing his children, in Job chapter 2 we read he contracts this deadly disease, this skin disease. Some scholars call it leprosy. We don't really know. We know it affected him from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. He had these boils and these oozing sores, so much so that Job spent his day taking ashes from the fire and rubbing on himself just to try to alleviate the pain and the itching. And when that didn't work, he took a jarred piece of pottery and he would scrape the flesh off of his bones. So now Job is attacked physically. It gets even worse for Job. His wife turns on him. She is so upset with him because he's still remaining steadfast. He's still remaining patient. He's still trusting God. He's still worshiping with God. And she's had enough. And in Job 2.9, look what happens. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? In other words, are you still pretending that God cares? Like nobody's watching. Everyone's dead. We've lost everything. Why do you act like nothing's wrong? Why, why do you still put your trust in God? Do you hold fast to your integrity? And then look what she says next. This has to hurt. Curse God and die. In other words, she's saying, it's over. Nothing else matters. Curse God and go kill yourself. And you thought your wife was mean. It gets even worse. Job doesn't have much left to lose, and so he has friends come over to visit him. They hear of all that has, has happened to Job. And these guys gang up on him, and they basically say, well, we know what's up. You, you must have some secret sin. God is punishing you because of the evil in your life. You walk around like you're this man of great reputation, but we know what's up. God is punishing you. And one thing I want you to understand, I don't have a lot of time to, to talk about this, but Job had an impeccable reputation. He was a man of integrity. 
His kids would often get together for these dinner parties. And early in the morning when they, when they would have these parties, Job would go out and he would make an atonement sacrifice for each of his ten kids just in case something happened to them. That's how much he believed in God. We're also told that Job was a man of such high integrity that he literally made a covenant with God with his eyes that he would not lust on another woman. He beat lust. He's got this great reputation, but not anymore. People are saying, yeah, we knew he couldn't be, this is too good to be true. God is punishing him. There's something wrong with that guy. I mean, there is nobody left on Job's side. Seemingly not even God. And so when you read the entire book of Job, like I said, it's a long book, you do understand and you do realize that at some point Job does begin to question God. Job begins to ask, why are you letting this happen to me? Have I not been faithful enough as your servant? Um, I, you know, I, do you not love me? Why are you allowing these things to happen? And I think all of us have asked that question of God at one point in our lives. Why, God? Why are you letting this happen to me or to my family? And so Job questions God, but he never curses God. He never blames God. He just remains patient. And so spoiler alert here. Let me tell you how the story ends. Job perseveres and God rewards him. He gets his kids back. He gets his sheep, his ox, his donkey, his camels. All of his wealth is returned. His health is restored. And, and perhaps his wife went and got some counseling and she doesn't tell him that he should kill himself anymore. I'm sure that relationship was reinstated too. I miss you being here not laughing at my corny jokes. But I think that the story of Job is recorded so that we can have help living through these calamities of life while at the same time trusting that God is sovereign. Virtually every one of you watching this will experience a bitter calamity in your life sooner or later. And you will almost certainly not understand why. You will most certainly say, why is this happening? I don't understand. But we follow the example of Job. We remain patient within God's purpose. So we go back to James, to our text. Behold, James 5.11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know, there is a reason for trials and suffering. And I can't tell you what that reason is. All I can tell you is when that happens to me, I try to remember Job. I don't know why there's pain and suffering in your life. I just know there's a reason. And so one day you may be standing in front of the bathroom mirror, shaving your neck, and all of a sudden you feel a lump. And three weeks later, you're sitting down for your, chemo, your first chemotherapy. I don't know why that happened. I know there's a reason. 
Or maybe you were dating someone and you thought, this is the person. I'm going to spend my life with this person. We're going to get married. And so you give them your heart and they shattered into a million pieces. And you undergo so much emotional pain. I mean, it hurts worse than any physical pain that you've ever experienced. I mean, your heart is just shattered. I don't know why that happened. I know there's a reason. This coronavirus, I, you know, Lindy and I working this food pantry are, are, are seeing things that maybe the, the average person doesn't see. People whose lives are devastated because they've lost their jobs. They're on the verge of bankruptcy. They don't know where their meal's coming tomorrow. They are financially devastated. I don't know what this whole COVID thing is about, but I know there's a reason. And some of you, maybe someone you love dies. Maybe you're like Job and, and one of your children die. Of course you're going to ask God, why? I don't know the answer to that, but I know there's a reason. I also know that Job saw his children again. And we have that same promise. That we will go to our children. We will see them again if our life is in Jesus Christ. I don't know why life sometimes seems chaotic. But I think we would do well to remember what James was reminding his readers who were undergoing immense persecution. We must remember that God is always in control. He has a reason and a purpose for everything. We remain patient like Job. I want you to see what Job says in Job chapter 23. Um, some scholars even believe that he sang this. I like to imagine him singing it. It doesn't matter. There's weight in either way that you look at it. But in Job 23, 10 through 13, he says about God, but he knows what I'm doing. In other words, God sees straight down into our hearts. He knows exactly what's going on. And when he tests me, I will be pure as gold. In other words, I'm no longer going to be a 17-pound doorstop. God has refined me and tested me, and I am pure gold. I have never refused to follow any of His commands. I have always treasured His teachings, but He alone is God, and who can oppose Him? Is it any wonder that James uses Job as an illustration of patience? I want to end and conclude this by talking about James for just a second. Because after all, this series is on the book of James. After James wrote this letter, and it was distributed, he was also persecuted. He was arrested. And early church historians give an account of how James met his death. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was taken on top of the temple. And they told him to denounce Jesus. And not only denounce Jesus, but have all of the followers in Jerusalem to denounce Jesus. And James wouldn't do that. He began to preach Jesus, so they pushed him off the temple. The fall should have killed him. But historians tell us it didn't. And so the Pharisees, the same people who killed Jesus, formed a semicircle around him and began to pelt him with stones. They began to stone him death. 
And historians say he did the same thing Stephen did. He looked up to heaven and he prayed for forgiveness for the men who were killing him. He said, God, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing and they couldn't take it. And so finally someone grabbed what is known as a fuller's club. It's a club you used to use to beat the dust out of rugs. And with one single blow, they struck James's head and he died. This man knew something about suffering and about patience. I often wonder while James was dying if he remembered the words of his brother Jesus, who is now his Savior Jesus. If he remembered the promise that he gave to James and the promise that he gives to us. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I often imagine that club coming across James's head and he exhales for the last time and closes his eyes on earth and he opens them in the presence of God and there's his big brother, Jesus, staring at him. And I imagine James saying, man, you were right. In this world, I had trouble. But I'm so glad that you overcame this world. I'm so glad that I remained patient and steadfast even during suffering, even when I didn't understand. And so I want to leave you with the words of James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the man who once called Jesus a lunatic, and then when he saw the resurrected Jesus, he was so overwhelmed that he became such a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem, his nickname became James the Just, a man who knew the virtue of patience. James 1.12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website, at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.